Let us open the Bible. Ephesians chapter 3. I hope today that not a single person leaves this assembly without fully embracing the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. That He is the Son of God. That He is the Lord of glory. That He is the only hope of everlasting life. That He is the only source of forgiveness for your sins. That He is altogether lovely without compare in this world. That we will not let anything distract us, divert us, or destroy us, depress us, compared to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We set our affection on other people, other persons, and they are nothing. Your husband, your wife, your parents, your children, in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ, are nothing. They're less than nothing. If not saved by this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, they and you will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. And no man can by any means, give to God a ransom for another man's soul. He is everything. He is our all in all. He is the fairest of 10,000. And it is a choice to believe that. It is a choice to embrace that. And I want to speak to you that are carnally minded and weak right now, and actually to all of you. It is a constant struggle to love the Lord Jesus Christ because your flesh hates Him. The world hates Him. The devil hates Him. The three of them are conspiring together against you. While we're singing, while we're praying, while I'm preaching, while you're meditating, your mind wanders. Your mind wanders all over the place. My mind wanders all over the place. It is a choice. To grab that mind and say, stop thinking in that direction. Get back on track with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive me and the weakness of my flesh. That constant struggle is what we will have until we get to die. Dying is a privilege to get rid of that torment that we live in all the time of a distracted mind and diverted passions. It is not abnormal. If you are having that struggle in your soul, it is not abnormal. There's nothing wrong with you. There's something right with you or you wouldn't consider it a struggle. You would just give in to it. You wouldn't even care about it. But if you're putting up a fight, the Lord will give you strength. Be of good courage. And the Lord will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. I am sorry that we have to deal with that. To be a speaker on a subject where there is a triumvirate of enemies that want you against me is discouraging because I'm fighting the same battle in the pulpit. I can multitask a little bit. And it's sickening. Lord, apprehend us like you apprehended Saul of Tarsus. And Heavenly Father, confine us. Put hobbles on our mind. And, O Lord, chain our hearts that we will think and love the Lord Jesus Christ as we should. Forgive us like a good father forgives and pities his children, remembering their weak frame. Remember our frame that we are dust, Holy Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you love Him, you'll put up the fight. If you love Him, you will put down those other thoughts. You will direct your attention toward Him. It is a choice to think on something good. You go to school and you're forced to think on stuff that's not going to do you any good, especially in the eyes and, and in comparison to eternity. Here we are for a few minutes on the Lord's Day where we want to gear our minds and our hearts and affection upward toward this person that has gone before us. He's called our forerunner. We're running behind Him. He's in heaven already and He's coming for us. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3 and verse 8 has our text. Unto me, the Apostle Paul wrote, 
who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. God chose Saul of Tarsus. He eventually became the Apostle Paul. God ordained him, charged him, and gave him a special role of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to Gentiles like you and me. Unsearchable riches. They're riches that cannot be measured. Forget the little tiny billionaire paupers of this world. This is the Lord of glory. He owns the universe. Billionaires. Do you know how much they take with them when they die? They don't have two pennies to rub together. They have nothing. The Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven and He has everything. At death, He didn't lose everything. At death, He gained everything because before death, He didn't have anything. He was poor in this world. What hinders you from loving Him more? As I asked last week. Is He not enough? Has He not done enough? Do you not know enough about Him? Then just listen for a few minutes. And we'll see if we can't help you. Ministers are supposed to bring forth new and old. Do you still love the old, old story of Jesus and His love? Choose today to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by mental attention and heart affection for Him. He knows all about your frame. He knows all about the struggle. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He knows the situation He has left us in until He takes us home to glory. Lay hold of Him by faith and love and say to Him, Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? Ephesians 3 and verse 8 is where we started. When it says unsearchable in this 8th verse, Paul was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. It means that it is something that cannot be fully searched into to be ascertained or exactly estimated. It's inscrutable. It's beyond our ability to measure it. It's a subject or topic so complex, deep, precious, and valuable that it defies complete explanation. It's a matter that is beyond human discovery, experience, imagination, or comprehension. Because the love of Christ transcends all that. It is above and it is beyond anything you have ever experienced before. It is above and beyond anything you have ever imagined before. The love of Christ and Christ Himself as a person. God's saving grace in Jesus Christ transcends. It exceeds. It goes above and beyond human experience, learning, and imagination. So it passes knowledge, as it says ten verses later in this chapter, in verses 18 and 19, it says the full dimensions of Christ's love pass knowledge. It's unbelievable. Why would God? It doesn't make sense. We don't know anything else like it. That someone else in this world would love you is very obvious. They're selfish. You're selfish. You two are connecting. That's just. But he isn't. He had to give up everything to come and to die for you. Yes, he did it for his glory, and his glory will be the ultimate end of all of us being saved. But here it says in verse nine, it passes knowledge, which is another way of saying unsearchable. And so we want to think on that. I gave you a verse and quoted it to you last Lord's Day from 1 Corinthians 2.9. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. You haven't seen it. You haven't heard it. You can't even imagine it. What is coming? This is the truth of God's Word. It is truer than gravity. Jesus defied gravity, didn't He? It's truer than gravity. Nothing can defy what is in heaven reserved for your inheritance. Let's embrace that and thank the Lord for it and live in the light of it. Riches. When it says unsearchable riches in 3 and verse 8, our riches, riches is a word to describe means or value or wealth and the power that comes with such wealth. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is described as abundant wealth to emphasize its value. 
When it says the unsearchable riches of Christ, it's describing the value of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Thus, as we explore and analyze this text and other texts in the Bible, we want to emphasize the value of the Son of God to us. Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's review very quickly. Christ is a word in the Greek language that's translated into English for the Anointed One. It equals the Old Testament word, the Messiah. Messiah is twice in the Old Testament, twice in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it ends with an S, Messiah. It is the Anointed One of God. In the New Testament, it is replaced with Christ. And so Christ is the title of the Anointed One of God. His personal name was Jesus. There was a baby born, laid in a manger, grew up in Nazareth, lived 33 and a half years in this world, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a Nazarene, not as a denomination, but as a man from the city of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene is the Christ of God. As the Christ of God, He is also our Lord. And so Peter can say in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. And we call Him the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus being the personal name that Mary and Joseph gave that boy that was born in Bethlehem. Christ, His title as the anointed Savior of God and Lord as His position over this universe. The Lord Jesus Christ. There are There is no sweeter phrase that should ever come off our lips than the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen, while the stones are thudding off his body, looked up into heaven and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That is the best, and that is the only way to die. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But before we get to that moment, let's live lives based on, Lord Jesus, what wilt thou have me to do? then we can call upon Him in confidence. Lord, help us toward that end. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Think with me. It is the glory of the person of the Son of God Himself, full of grace and truth and preeminent above all others. When we say the unsearchable riches of Christ, let's see if we can summarize it into a few defining statements. It's the glory of the person of the Son of God, full of grace and truth and preeminent over all others. It is the value and worth of God's grace to save sinners through Jesus Christ's substitutionary work. It is the esteem, honor, praise, and wealth that belongs to Jesus for being our Savior. It is the incomprehensible transaction to adopt rebel sons as the sons of God by Jesus Christ. It is the supreme power and value of Christ's saving work to fully save all the elect. The unsearchable riches of Christ. It includes all the facets of salvation, which is another study that we've made at another time. It is so rich It is so deep, it is so complex, it is so wonderful to behold that the angels of heaven desire to look into these things. They want to figure out what in the world God has done saving you and me by Jesus Christ. How He how He made a man through a virgin that was lower than them. And when He was born, did you hear our brother Chris read from Hebrews chapter 1, When he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, you know that little dingy stable with the manger? What did God order in heaven? Do you like that? Does that roll off your tongue easily? Does it, does it kind of strengthen you? Let all the angels of God worship him. All the angels of God split the Judean skies around Bethlehem because there was born a Savior for us, not for them, who was going to be their Lord. They worshipped a baby, human, a baby man, a baby boy, an infant in a manger. The unsearchable riches of Christ. 
And then He ascended into heaven and was exalted far above them all. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you love Him this morning? Don't you dare leave this place not loving Him and embracing Him and saying, Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? Lord, what will You have me to do in my marriage? What will You have me to do with my finances? What will You have me to do with my lusts? What will You have me to do on the job? What will You have me to do serving the church better? Don't you leave. I am the ambassador of the high king of heaven. I am the least of all his ambassadors he has ever chosen. But nonetheless, I am his ambassador. He says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Cursed at the coming of the Lord. You have never seen President Obama, but you think we have a president of this country named President Obama. You think the first president of our nation was George Washington. You think George Patton was a general of the American and Allied armies in World War II. You think those things. You've never seen them. I don't know why you believe them. This we can believe. There is a man at the right hand of God. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. And He is coming again. And He reigns over heaven and earth, waiting for all of His enemies to be made His footstool. He is Lord in Christ. He is the lover of your soul. He is fairer, as I've already said, than 10,000. Grace is poured into His lips. He is altogether lovely. He is beautiful beyond compare. His power has no limit. His holiness is glorious in the sight of God. His feet are better than you will ever be. Except by imputation and justification of the great judge of heaven who has made us as justified as Jesus Christ is himself by putting all of our sins upon him. This is, this is truer than anything else you know. I shared with you last Lord's Day some economic theory. In economic theory, how do you value a thing? And I went through a number of comparisons Because in economic theory, the value of a thing can be identified several different ways, and I'm not going to repeat them for you. But I hope you remember those. Now, Brother James, my dear blood brother James back there, six or seven years ago, the Lord was speaking to him after an economics class and just started prompting him to write down a few notes. And so I've stolen a couple points from James. And between the two of us, we're conspiring for your hearts today. Because God the Holy Spirit put something on His heart. Now, So let me share two more concepts, two more rules or laws of economics. First of all, there is opportunity cost. In a world of limited funds and limited means of production, it denies us from securing or buying everything and from producing everything. Every time you make a choice to buy one thing, it means you can't buy all the alternative things. Every time you choose to produce something, if you are a manufacturer or a farmer, you know, a farmer makes a choice, oh, let's just throw the dice. Is it going to be corn, rye, or soybeans this year? He plants soybeans. That means he can't plant wheat, rye, barley, or other crops. He's committed to soybeans. It's opportunity cost. It's a very serious economic law. Scarce resources require a choice between several mutually exclusive alternatives. Adam, if you are given two jobs to finish before the end of March that will require at least seven weeks to finish, do you get to do them both? You only get to do one of them. And if you, you may choose one and then find out later that it was a costly one and the other job might have been a better choice. That is what we go through all the time. We buy something and we get it, you know, we buy a Ford, we get it home, we find out that a Chevy's a better car. Forgive me, Ford buyers. It's, it's called opportunity cost. Now just listen. And just, for those of you that have been taught economics, you already are familiar with it. If you've, been, if you've had business courses, you are already familiar with it. The choice to buy one thing with limited funds means you can't buy other things. 
The choice to produce one thing with limited capital, limited machine time, means that you can't produce other things. Due to this fact, there's always going to be regrets for what you gave up to do what you did choose to do. When a person chooses to follow Jesus Christ, there is no opportunity cost. I want to bury you with this point. I want you to delight in this point. Every other choice you make, if you choose to work for Costco, you have chosen not to work for Scott and Stringfellow. If you choose to work for Scott and Stringfellow, you have chosen not to work for Goldman Sachs. Every choice we make, when you marry someone, that means you have chosen that you will not marry anyone else because that is the one you have chosen for the rest of your life to be your spouse. But when we choose Christ, there is no opportunity cost. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26, if a man were to gain the whole world and lose his own soul, it is a tragic loss. Do you, do you follow me? If a man were to gain the whole world and lose his own soul in relationship to Christ, it is a terrible opportunity cost. But that is the whole world. Can we, can we say, can we say that this might be unsearchable riches? That if you were to gain the whole world, and you don't have Christ, you lose. And you lose big time. And you lose horribly for eternity. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Son. Thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to embrace Him by thinking how superior He is to everything that we know on earth. God established these economic laws because we are finite creatures and finite means there's always opportunity cost because you can't do it all. He established the laws that govern everything in this world, but He transcends them with Christ His Son. Jesus said, it is better to go into life maimed, right hand cut off, What is dear and practical to you in your life that you should get rid of? Cut it off. What are you tempted with with your right eye? Pluck it out. I don't mean it literally. I mean getting rid of those things that lead you away from Christ. Jesus said, it is better to go into life maimed without your right hand and without a right eye than for your whole body to be cast into hell for eternity. There is no opportunity cost for following Christ. No matter what you lose for Christ, look at Mark chapter 10. No matter what you lose for Christ, He will make it up a hundredfold in this world and He'll give you eternal life in the world to come. How's that for opportunity cost? A 10,000% return by following Christ. That's your opportunity cost. This is the Word of God entertaining us. And I don't mean that word cheaply, lightly, disrespectfully, or irreverently whatsoever. I want to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James, thank you, brother. Oh, be careful when you share something with your pastor. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, here's Peter getting a little bit about uh, his opportunity cost that he had paid. Here's Peter going off because the rich young ruler left Jesus because he was going to have to give up his riches. And so Peter says, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. Our opportunity cost of having followed you, Lord, is it's enormous. Don't pull that. Don't come and tell me that you lose for following Christ. Jesus answered and said, and we get a verily here, of a truth. Truly, I say unto you, there is no man... No man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, see it's Christ and the Gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. There is no opportunity cost for following Christ. 
Everyone in this room, you should not leave this room until you have made a perfect, complete, and full choice that you are going to follow Christ. He is going to be the reason you get up in the morning. He's going to be the reason you go to bed at night. He is going to motivate and direct all that you do. You're going to call upon Him all day. You're going to thank Him for every positive thing in your life. You're going to beg Him for every negative thing in your life. You're going to live as unto Him. You're going to do all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God, giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no opportunity cost. It is a 10,000% return. You know what the Bible says? You know what Jesus said? If any man will lose his life for my sake. That sounds like an opportunity cost. Losing our lives. If any man will lose his life for my sake, he shall find it. If you try to find your life, you will lose it. The happiest people I have ever read about, the happiest people I have ever met, are the people that have given themselves the fullest to the Lord Jesus Christ. The unhappiest people I have ever met are those who pretend that they're Christians and who do not give themselves fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is your opportunity cost by losing your life to gain it? It is trying to save your life and so losing it. Which means your opportunity cost is total gain. There's only one way that any of this can be true. That's right. That the Bible is true and that there is an infinite glorified man on the throne of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God gave him for you and me. The gain and value of following Christ is much better in this world and in eternity. What? There's no other choice that you get to make like that. I mean, as soon as you buy a car and you drive it home, you realize it's got a few deficiencies. And as soon as your neighbor buys their new car and brings it home, you realize your car has more deficiencies. But you know what? You will never feel any of those thoughts. None of those things will ever be true when you choose the Lord Jesus Christ and follow Him. Who? Why will you not? I know there's enemies against you. There's enemies against me every day of my life. Of all kinds. That you seldom ever hear about. Of any of them. And all of you, I know that that is just as true. But to follow Christ with all of our hearts, He provides the most strength. When we only follow Him partly, He doesn't give us but a little strength. He wants us to follow Him fully. And He will energize us and support us and defend us and encourage us and strengthen us by His might. And there is no limit to His might. How's that for opportunity cost, my dear brother? Okay, James wanted to suggest the law of diminishing marginal utility. Don't get confused. It's marginal utility. The utility of something is the value that it provides you. The utility of a thing is its pleasure that you get out of it. And in this life, the way God has so arranged things, the more units you get, they diminish on a marginal basis from satisfying you. When you get the first one of something, for instance, this car that we're talking about, now what if you had two in the driveway? Would the second one give you as much pleasure as the first one? Not even close. Well, what if we filled up the backyard with them? Would number seven give you the pleasure of number six? No, and six wouldn't even measure because it wouldn't come close to number two, and two was in the shade compared to number one. But now when you go to Hibachi Grill down here on Woodruff Road, you go in there and you, you get a plate full of food, and you eat that food and it tastes so good. But the marginal utility of plate two has dropped off considerably, hasn't it? But because you're in a place where you paid a fixed dollar amount and there's as much food as you want, you think that maybe plate three will taste as good as plate one. But by the time you've eaten plate four, you are sick and you would wish you had never known that there was a place named Hibachi Grill. That is the, the law of diminishing utility on a unit basis. Because each one, each, each one you get of something, it declines in its value and pleasure to you. Does God know this rule of economics? Oh, yes, He does. The Bible has this maxim. The full soul loatheth and honeycomb. What's the sweetest substance known to man? Honeycomb. Isn't that a cereal? 
honeycomb. It's one of the sweetest things God ever made, but the full soul loatheth in honeycomb. Right. He's had two plates of food and somebody offers him honeycomb. <laughs> that is way too sweet for me. What happened? The law of diminishing marginal utility. Does the Bible say this? He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. This is a, this is a law. God recognizes this law. That once you have some silver and you get more, it's not enough. It doesn't satisfy. There's diminishing value in it. When a person follows to choose, when a person chooses to follow Jesus Christ, there is no lessening of pleasure at all. There is no reduction at all. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul, the apostle, knew Jesus better than anyone. The apostle Paul. He knew Jesus better than anyone. He had spent three years in the Arabian desert with the Lord himself. Jesus had appeared to him on numerous occasions. Jesus had inspired him to preach in all sorts of situations. He was a prophet. He was an apostle. He had a working daily relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You would think that Paul would have been a little tired of Jesus. Okay, I can see all of you staring at me, wondering, what do you mean by that? Okay, is it common among our race to say that absence makes the heart grow fonder? Why? Because one more day with you around for 24 hours is more than I can bear. That's called the law of diminishing marginal utility. And so we... Well, you're all staring at me. So let's just make it real. It's very real. It, it applies to everything you know in this life. That after we've used a unit, the second unit does not have the same value or utility to us as the first unit. So it's always declining. And we're getting disappointed with something, but never with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul knew him better than anyone. And look what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Did he have any opportunity cost in verse 8? Or did he want to count everything but dung that he could have Christ? Did he think that Christ was a better exchange than everything else he had in his life? He did. What did he want? What did Paul want? And be found in him, verse 9, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him. Hello? Paul knew him better than anyone. That I may know him? Everything in my life. I have thrown it away. I have counted it loss. I have, I consider it dung in order that I might know him. He already knew him. Do you, James, yes. Go ahead and nod, brother. Yes. There was more to know of Christ that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Had Paul already suffered some? Did Paul already have, know the power of a, of a resurrected life? Being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Remember, the law of diminishing marginal utility. The first time he knew Christ, the second time he knew Christ, the third year of his life as a Christian, the sixth year as his life of his life as a Christian, all those things which are behind are not his sins. Those things which are behind in this 13th and 14th verses are not his achievements in the Jews' religion. These are his accomplishments as a Christian. And looking back, he was forgetting all those things which are behind to press forward to more because every new unit of Christ exceeds all the ones behind. It is the opposite of the law of diminishing marginal utility. The more you know Christ, the more He can satisfy your soul. There is nothing else like it in the universe. The more you know Him, the more He can satisfy your soul. The better you know the Bible, the more it satisfies your soul. You can read it 50 times, and the 51st time you read this book, it will speak to you in a way it didn't the other 50 times. That is, that is unbelievable. 
That, no, that is unsearchable. That is unsearchable. It's so wonderful. Jesus gained at the right hand of God full joy and pleasures forevermore. Peace and love that pass all understanding and knowledge are for His disciples. Thou will keep Him in perfect peace. Peace that passes all understanding is what you get by learning how to lay everything at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. David said, I have seen an end of all perfection. David was a king. Every chariot that was brought to him had its flaws. Every well that was dug didn't flow at the right amount of fluid a minute. Everything he saw, every bow made was not perfect. I have seen an end of all perfection. There is nothing perfect in this world. I've all, I've seen it all come to an end. I'm a king. But thy law is exceeding broad. I can't get to the limits of that. I can't find its faults. I can't find its flaws. I've seen an end of all perfection, but thy law is exceeding broad. Psalm 119 and verse 96. Wow. The more you have of Christ, the more He satisfies the soul. And so you go a little deeper. And then He satisfies your soul more. And He satisfies your soul more. And that's the way it was with Paul. And by living, by living the way that the Bible teaches and that God through Jesus Christ has taught us, it maximizes all of earthly pleasures. The utility of marriage is best maximized by doing it God's way. If you don't do it God's way, marriage is very disappointing. If you do it God's way, it's very pleasing and satisfying. You never lose with Christ the unsearchable riches of Christ. You will never plumb the depths of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never know the limits of His power. You will never know when He cannot buy something. There will never be a time when He cannot help you. There will never be a time when He does not love you. All others might forsake you. Even your parents might forsake you. As it is written in Psalm 27 and verse 10, then the Lord will take you up. You're nearby, so flip back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and let's look at that 18th verse. The Apostle Paul prayed that the Holy Spirit would help the Ephesian church to be able, verse 18 of chapter 3, to be able to comprehend. Without Holy Spirit help, and I hope that you have prayed for the Holy Spirit to help you understand this message, without Holy Spirit help, you are not able to comprehend, which is to understand or grasp with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Now, we went over this last Lord's Day, but I just want to show it to you again, that the, the, the breadth of the love of Christ took in so many of all different nationalities and, and races and languages and so forth, Jews and Gentiles, and we looked at the breadth of it, and we saw the length of the love of Christ. It goes from eternity before the world was created into the distant future of eternity and eternity's eternity. We saw the, the, the depth of the love of Christ even reach down to get you and me in this room. And the height of the love of Christ takes us all the way to the throne room of heaven and into the presence of God Himself. We saw those things. Let us turn to the book of Hebrews. Let us turn to the book of Hebrews. A couple of brothers introduced us to this book. And let's just look at this book to see what it says about the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, don't go away from today's service thinking that was just another service. It has nothing to do with the speaker. It has nothing to do with his inability to communicate. It has everything to do with the content of this subject. The person and object of this subject, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't go away without fully embracing Him. I will live for Him. 
I will bet my life in this world and my life in the next world on living for Him every day, one day at a time, every part of my life, my finances, my speech, my thoughts, my marriage, my job, the way I keep my house, everything will be governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Don't leave. I'm His ambassador. And it is a warning. Don't leave without coming to terms with the Lord of glory. Very briefly, thank you, Chris, for reading chapter 1. Thank you, Colin, for reading chapter 2. The Old Testament religion was God's religion. Moses' religion was God's religion. The book of Hebrews is written to converted Jews in Judea. That's why it's called Hebrews. They weren't Gentiles. The Apostle Paul, in this epistle, provides them the information about Christ that would solidify them and establish them and fix them in their newfound Christian religion following Christ so they would not go back under Moses, under the Old Testament religion of temple worship. There was a huge temptation to do so because it was God's temple. They were God's priests. It was God's altar. It was God's sacrifices. It was God's Word. Three quarters or more of your Bible is God's Word of the Old Testament. They were being persecuted for it. They were being shamed for being Christians. And so Paul wrote this epistle. Everything they have under the Old Testament is far inferior to Jesus Christ, my brethren. That is the epistle. It doesn't matter what chapter you're in, if you look closely, you will find him making those comparisons. Brother Orville read the last chapter to us last Lord's Day. In Hebrews chapter 13, the two cities of Jerusalem are compared. Here we have no continuing city. But we have one above. And that new Jerusalem is mentioned in chapter 12 as well. Very quickly, here's a little quick outline of the book of Hebrews. Because if if you're going to preach about Jesus Christ and His unsearchable riches, do you know what book of the Bible you have to include somewhere? It's this book right here. This is my favorite book of the Bible. This is the simplest book of the Bible to understand. This book of the Bible has one theme from the beginning to the end. Jesus Christ is preeminent over everything in God's religion of the Old Testament. We are not comparing Him to Allah. There is no comparison. We're not comparing Him to Muhammad. There is no comparison. We're comparing Him to these things. First, the prophets. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Think of some prophets. Think of Israel's best. Samuel. Elijah. Elisha. Isaiah. Jeremiah. Daniel. Malachi. And a whole slew of them has about the prophets. Verse 1. Look, there is no Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the saints of God which are in Judea. There's none of that. It's just God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake by prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. There's no comparison. And in case you were thinking there might be a comparison, he goes on to describe that son as having been appointed to be the heir of all things. Now if he's the heir of all things, how much do you own? All things. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You say that's impossible. No, it's not impossible. It's unsearchable. It's the unsearchable riches of Christ. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. What prophet made a world? They couldn't even draw the world. They couldn't even draw a map of the world. They didn't even know what Japan looked like. They didn't know what North America looked like. And He's the brightness of His glory and the express image of God's person. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He purged our sins by Himself and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's no prophet near Him. All the prophets combined, squared and cubed. Don't get near the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophets are just blown out in three verses. Angels. Runs from verse 4 to the end of chapter 2. 
numerous different comparisons, which I don't have time. I think it took, I don't know, 32 sermons to get through Hebrews back in 1988. So, so I don't have time right now before lunch. <laughs> A little holy laughter for the glory of God Amen. in the way he wrote the book of Hebrews. Beginning at verse 4, being made so much better than the angels. Do you know when that took place? That was not his incarnation. Because he was first made a little lower than the angels. What is, what is this? Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Do you know what that name is? It starts with S and it's only three letters long. Does that help you? Son. He is the Son of God. Because he goes on and says in verse 5, Friend of which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. God never said that to an angel, Thou art my son. He said that to Jesus of Nazareth, Thou art my son. Thou art my son. You are my fiery servants. Which is mentioned there in verse 7. The angels are spirits and they're a flame of fire, but they are not son. And so he mentioned these comparisons are just wonderful. He, he tells his angels in verse 7, Your spirits and you're a flame of fire, but under the sun, he says in verse 8, thy throne, I need the next two words, O God. Wow! Is that a difference between angels and the Lord Jesus Christ? These peop- these brethren, these Hebrew brethren had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were tempted to give up that religion to go back under Moses' law. And so Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just takes Moses' law apart and shows how beggarly and weak and carnal and empty it was compared to the better promises, the better mediator, and the better... The only Christ. And the only sacrifice that can put away sin. It's our Lord Jesus. I'm sorry that I don't have time to preach you the whole series on Hebrews right now because I'm, I, I'm kind of anxious to do it. So I have to skip over all this. And I hope that you were listening to Brother Chris as he read chapter 1. I hope you were listening to Brother Colin as he read chapter 2. Did, did you see where he brought in Psalm 8? You know, some things happen by design in our services. Did you, did you notice when he read Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2, because in verse 6 of chapter 2, but one in a certain place testified saying, what is man? That's David writing Psalm 8. And it goes on to quote David for three verses. And it says at the end of verse 8, but now we see not yet all things put under him. We don't see everything put under the feet of man. But the next verse has a pretty good inspired disjunctive. Is that but that starts verse 9 decent? But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor far above all principalities and powers now. And it goes on to say that he did not take on him the nature of angels. He took on the flesh of, of Abraham's seed so that he could die for us as you finish out the chapter. It's just, it's just fabulous material. Then chapter 3 is Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was so great to Israel. Can you imagine being in your hut after you've worked an 18-hour day making Pharaoh's pyramids without straw, you're in your hut and you're watching the 6 o'clock news and it has Moses on there defying Pharaoh. And the cameras have gone into the bakery of Pharaoh and they're cutting open bread and there's frogs in the bread. That's Moses. You get to the edge of the Red Sea and he holds up his rod, and the Red Sea parts. He smacks a rock, and water comes out of it. Fire comes down from heaven. There's a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. This is Moses. Moses was so important to Israel, God had to bury him where no one could find him, or they'd have been worshiping the corpse like the Egyptians were worshiping Pharaoh's corpses. So, we got to have a chapter on Moses. Wherefore, holy brethren, verse 1, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So far, they're equals. Well, except if you read verse 1. Because we only got one apostle and high priest. By the way, if you're ever talking to a Mormon, if you're ever talking to a Mormon, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1 helps. I love Hebrews 3, 1. Because there's only one apostle, not a quorum of twelve in Salt Lake City, and there's only one high priest 
and both offices are in one man. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, for this man, who, what, what man are we talking about now? For this man, Christ Jesus, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house. The house that Moses served in, was he was just a servant in the house that was Christ's house. He built it, and it was his by possession, ownership, and headship. If we go to chapter 4, it's Jesus is better than Joshua. Do you understand that when the word jo- the name of Mary's baby was Joshua? Oh, it just... It makes me uncomfortable to even tell you that. The name of Mary's baby was Joshua because they spoke Hebrew. But when Hebrew comes into Greek and then into English, it's changed to Jesus. You better remember that. Now there is a rest. And when we open the second service, we are going to open it with Psalm 95 that tells us in one two-letter word, that there is a rest. And that rest is not the seventh day. Do you know how wonderful it was to have one day completely free of all labor every week? That does not come from the movements of the heavenly bodies. There is no movement of the sun, the moon, the stars, or anything else that tell us about a seven-day work week. That comes out of the Word of God. And all the nations of the earth follow it. That was a rest. But that isn't the rest because Paul makes fun of that in verses 3 through 5. But still there's a rest. And then he mentions this rest. Verse 8, For if Jesus had given them rest, that Jesus is Joshua, the successor of Moses. Because the land of Canaan was not the rest for the people of God. But, But wasn't the land of Canaan a land flowing with milk and honey? It was indeed. But wasn't Canaan a land that had seven nations that were replaced by the Israelites? It was indeed. But wasn't Canaan the land where the cities were already built, the infrastructure already in place, the wells already dug, the vineyards already mature, and the houses already furnished with good things because of generations of accumulation? Isn't that the land of Canaan? Isn't that the rest? For if Jesus... If Joshua, in the book of Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not afterward, in Psalm 95, have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And what is that rest? It is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and ye shall find rest for your souls. It's not unbelievable. It's just unsearchable. And that's all for this assembly. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.